Hello Octothorpe listener, it's John here. Just a very quick note before you listen to the rest of this episode, that in between recording and releasing this episode, Discon 3 did in fact rename their promotions division, the communications division. So to whoever at Discon is listening to our podcast records, um, please, please stop, it's scary. I'm, this is not aggression. My grandparents' life was ruled by food. So after the lunch dishes had been washed up, my grandmother would sit down with a cup of tea and two chocolate biscuits. And that would keep her going for the period between immediately after lunch and proper tea with sandwiches and cakes and tea, which was at five o'clock. What I loved about that was Liz's deep and heartfelt sigh, which is why, listeners, you heard me lose my sh- halfway through Alison's anecdote. It didn't go in the direction I was expected. I thought Alison was going to send us into an argument about which meal times happen at which time of day. <laughs> and we have neatly sidestepped that and let us never go back. Hello everyone and welcome to the very 36th episode of the Octothorpe podcast which is coming to you on the 22nd of July 2021. I am John Coxon. I am Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. God, it's only the 8th of July. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, we are well in advance here. And we are recording early because it is the summer of fun. Summer of fun! And at the time of recording, it has been six hours, approximately, since we last released an episode of Octothorpe, and we have had two letters of comment. And this is mostly because I said things about cake, which is, I think, very good. Chris Garcia says, Alison is right. So very, very right. <laughs> right, anything else in the locks, guys? Alison I think you might have done that thing where you read someone saying Alison is wrong, but you, you fuzz it up in your head again. No, I am merely selectively quoting from Chris Garcia's lock. Chris agrees with me on cake and, well, no, Chris disagrees with Alison on cake, but agrees with Alison on Neil Gaiman. And also gets a plug for my fanzine Lulzine in there, which I appreciated. Thank you, Chris. Chris also says that... Brownies are not cake. Brownies were cookies and then they evolved into their own category. And the key thing about this is that brownies have never been cookies because, well, cookies is just the American name for biscuits. And as we know, don't write in. I mean, do write in, obviously. Biscuits have a nice snap to them so that when you pick up a biscuit, it goes snap. So this is um this is in fact wrong. You pick up a biscuit and it sort of crumbles apart or it's very soggy because you had gravy on it. And Chris will know what I mean. No, no, those are American biscuits, which are scones. No, they're not. Basically, baked goods are hard. No, no, no. If they're hard, you're doing it wrong. They should kind of be soft and fluffy. No, if they're hard, they're biscuits. We've been over this. No, no, no. Biscuits are crispy, but they're not hard they're just kind of you eat a ginger nut okay ginger nuts will break your teeth i love ginger nuts liz what's your favorite biscuit what are they called those uh choco leibnitz that are like a sort of uh rich tea underneath but they've got chocolate on top they're even better if you just eat all the chocolate off the top and then throw the rest of it away 
think. Well, the other option is uh, Marks and Spencer's uh, very chocolatey uh, rounds. Ooh. Which, as they say, are more chocolate than biscuit. Marks and Spencer's dark chocolate ginger biscuits, which remind me of my grandmother because she used to eat two of them every afternoon with her tea. Chris also says, let us all rejoice that a Mary Robinette Coel option for chairing has been activated. And um, yes, this is something that happened after we recorded our last episode. And by the time you hear this, we'll be old hat. Yeah, it happened about 20 minutes after we recorded our last episode. And I did tell John to record a pickup and slip it in, but he didn't. Nope, I didn't. He also has a question for all of the Octothought people, which is what is the best way to get things to us? Uh, so um, send it to me, Chris. I want it. Whatever it is, me. Email. <laughs> I assume he means physical tat, but I could be wrong. And then And Rosin wrote to us with a letter of comment um, saying that she too did a slightly sad face when me and Liz spoke about reading Good Omens as teens. She would have been 19, but only started reading uh, Terry Pratchett the year it was published. So probably uh, 21 before she read it. Um, So yes, and she agrees with us that John Finnamore being involved is good. Uh, And she notes he is an excellent observer, and that is true, and I don't think we mentioned it last episode, but his his observational sketches are amazing, so um, that is a very good point. Um, And she has joined Discon 3, and she blames us for this. Uh, Sorry, she has bought a virtual membership to Discon 3, and she blames us for this. She says that listening to Octthorpe is an expensive pursuit. Uh, So, um, sorry about that, Ange. Uh, Not that sorry, though. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. Um, and then she tweeted at us to say, forgot to mention in my lock, not all of those things called cake are cake. See pancake. And that's a good point. Pancakes, not cakes. They are, in fact, biscuits. No. So Ange mentions that listening to Octothorpe is an expensive pastime. And I think we can combine this with Chris Garcia's letter to say, if you would like to send us stuff, obviously get in touch. <laughs> We are going to talk about something that we started to talk about last episode. We want to touch a little bit on how conventions communicate and and how it might be quite rooted in quite old-fashioned assumptions about how communications actually work that haven't really been reconsidered in the modern age. A crude model of how Worldcon communications work is that the role of communicating with the outside world is taken by two of the Worldcon divisions, which are promotions and publications. Uh, And this is for good reasons. It's basically because in the old days, uh, most of what happened in terms of kind of communicating with the outside world was done by writing things on bit of paper and sending them to people. The key issue here is that obviously the advent of the internet complicates this model because it basically means that you have a lot of opportunities to talk to your membership and there's a lot of opportunity for potential miscommunications if one division is communicating on the internet with the membership in a way that is not consistent with the kind of view of your Worldcon as an entity. And so this is something that I think has gotten much more common is that now any division can directly interface with the members in a way that I don't think was anywhere near as possible before the internet was around. But what this means is that now, instead of having two divisions who are the public-facing divisions and the rest kind of being either public-facing but at con or being internal, 
you have divisions, all of which are effectively public facing. But we haven't reconsidered how Worldcons communicate in light of that. I think that best solution to this is to have a communication division whose job it is to come up with the opinion of the Worldcon on certain issues and to make sure that the Worldcon actually hews to that line. And I don't mean this in terms of uh, and so I'm not talking a kind of draconian controlling the message thing. I'm more talking about a way of making sure that if you take a high level decision, the communications of your convention actually reflect that high level decision. What I more mean is if you've decided that it's important to consult Hugo finalists on things that affect Hugo finalists, you make sure that every division is aware that that is a decision the convention has taken and you provide support to divisions to enable them to do that well. I think the same thing is also true of Eastercon, but I think Eastercons have less rigid organisational structures which are more changeable between Eastercons, so I think it's less of a problem there. But one of the reasons I've volunteered to be the head of communications for the 2024 Eastercon is because I do think some of these comments are applicable to Eastercons as well. Now, Alison, who has made a variety of faces through what I've just said, will come in and disagree with everything and tell me why I am wrong. Liz might want to go first, though. That's very nice of you. I mean, I do think John is wrong in some ways. So shall I go first on why John is wrong? And then you can follow up with why John is more wrong. So I should say I haven't run a convention in the pre-internet era because, you know, you're going, to, going back to sort of the like mid-90s, I would guess, before you have go back to one which was not doing things on the internet. So I'm, but I'm not sure if it's that more divisions are communicating as much as more divisions can communicate more and a lot faster. Hmm. Yeah. The program division would always be communicating with program participants. It's just now instead of sending them a letter, you have like a whole uh, series of back and forth emails and an awful lot more communication going on. And the same thing with, you know, like member services will be communicating a lot more with people. Um, Access, for instance, communicates with people an awful lot and does an awful lot of like direct sort of uh, member facing communications. So I don't think it's that it was all it all used to be confined to certain divisions. But I think it's just that it all happens more and faster. And in some cases, it happens in a much more public way. Um, so, But I also think some of this is um, you can't split con communications into kind of public facing and, and sort of private communications. Oh, you can. I don't, th- I don't think you can because nothing, you know. Because it gets out. Yes, it does. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't think of things as being private and public just because anything you say on behalf of the convention could be quoted somewhere or revealed even if you didn't intend it to. But I think you can draw a distinction between things which are official con communications happening on those channels and things which are essentially discussions happening in emails between one member of convention staff and some of the members um, and things like that. Because those, I think, maybe don't need to be in such a, a strong branded voice as maybe your public facing communications do i mean and it it also depends i mean if it's something you're going to send to like a thousand of your members you probably do want to think about how it comes across whereas if this is you know someone sends you a a, you know a query about where's the nearest pharmacy to the the convention center and you send something back that doesn't maybe need to be quite so strongly uh thought about so i think john's wrong um no, I think John is most right in some parts, but also wrong in some other parts. That's what they said when I was born. <laughs> He's right in some parts, but wrong in others. Yeah, they weren't wrong. 
So I think we touched on one of the part things, I think, last week, which is that the voice of the chair is very important in determining conventions overall tone. And that is not cited in either publications or promotions division. Um, I have a kind of general rant, which is not really necessarily a rant for this particular discussion on the subject, what are the publications of a convention for? And if it's not for communicating your convention's philosophy or telling people information they need to know, then then I'm kind of like, well, why why have them? And And that does flow through into things like if you choose to do special publications or something like that, why are you choosing to do those particular special publications? And I would include the program book or souvenir book within that because I think a lot of the stuff a lot of convention program books are very bad and a lot of the stuff that goes in them is of very poor quality this this kind of links to a lot of fanish fanishly produced material for a purpose to order is often quite bad and I think that that that's just is an example of that um and John didn't really touch on on the social media specifically, which is kind of an area ahead within promotions division most of the time, but has which has two jobs um, for most conventions, I think. Uh, one of which is to, again, impart the convention's lines to take and philosophy to the membership. But also it's got this reactive role of spotting not only when the internet has come down on your head and you need to deal with it, but also the when bits of your convention are not worth working properly, the way you find out about it first is is through your social media team. And if you're lucky, it's in direct messages to the social media team where somebody says, I've been trying to raise so-and-so in bug division and they haven't really got back to me for four months and is there a problem there? But sometimes it's actually that, that conversation is quite public, which is why every every company on the internet is always busy going, please, please send us a DM so we can deal with this where people aren't watching. And I think there's a whole thing there about the process by which we set up effective and rapid communications with members in a way that doesn't cause volunteers to get extremely tired and stressed out all of the time. Um, It's kind of so this is why I think both outreach and promotions are not a great name for that division. And that is where John and I are in agreement, because it's clearly a communications division. Um, And that bit I would agree with. I think the role of promotions is increasing as the role of publications should be shrinking. I tried to get rid of them for EasterCon. I didn't try to get rid of all of them because we wanted to have some AtCon publications that were good, and I think we did. But it isn't necessarily shrinking. And I think we should be doing more to think about what it is that each publication achieves and what it does for for members, particularly if you're going to put that publication into the post because post uh, global post is now very expensive. I, I wanted to get rid of progress reports for um, Follicon in 2018 because I thought they were very outdated and not a very good use of people's time. But it turned out that Easter cons have a kind of flow and rhythm and there's an expectation that certain pieces of work will have been done by certain dates and those are the dates of the four progress reports. So even if you don't have progress reports, it's quite useful as a kind of planning structure for your convention to say we will announce the following things at the following times um so even if you actually get rid of the physical progress reports you need to be quite careful that you don't get rid of the work that you should have done by novacon or whatever and if you make your overarching communications division like with any other 
machinery of Wilcon change, as as uh, as us old civil service lags would call it, you have to be sure that the jobs you end up with are sensibly sized. And that's something we touched on a little bit last time. On on progress reports, I think I, I completely agree that I'm not sure of the merit of posting progress reports to members, but it is definitely helpful to have those milestones. And I think you're right that you have to think about what certain publications are doing. So um, I think, for instance, I support having physical readmes, physical newsletters at conventions. And I quite like the artist showcase that Worldcon tends to do. And the reason I like those publications is because I think they each occupy a... They each fill a role at the convention, which I think is not necessarily easily filled by other things. And I am even though I am someone who is very technology forward, I think. Being able to have a copy of the program that doesn't run out of batteries is useful. Being able to have newsletters that you can wave at people or put in places where people will notice them as they're walking rather than having them on a website that people might not check is useful. And having the artist showcase as a way to kind of give people a tangible reminder of the artists that were at your convention and, and, and a way to connect with the artwork after they've gotten home, I think is useful. So I, I do, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a role for paper publications, but I do think you do have to think quite carefully about what the, what the things you want to do with those are and why you're doing them. And if the answer is, because we always do it, that you might want to have another thing. And it, and it might well be that you come up with reasons. You're like, oh, actually, no, this does still make sense, like physical newsletters. Um, and I agree with you as well. I think you are right that effectively what's happening is the promotions or the outreach division is the communications division. But I, I think that's one of the reasons why I want it to be renamed, because I want it to be... I think there's a tendency for Worldcon not to consider the role that that division has in shaping the message and the personality of the Worldcon. And I think giving it a different name and perhaps refocusing kind of some of what it does would be very helpful in that regard um, to make it clearer that they do have that role. Instead of calling your promotions division, say, promotions division or outreach division, you could just call it the Worldcon Fire Service. <laughs> Yeah, I think that works. Also, uh, unrelated, I have an art request uh, that's just come to my mind for some reason. If you try to control the message too much, you are probably doomed, but there is a happy medium. And there are certainly things about which the convention should say, this is what we've decided and this is what, therefore, everybody in a senior role on this convention is going to say about it. And I don't think it's wrong to have that expectation. But I think at the point where you're going, oh, we require everyone down to the person who is stuffing um, flyers into con bags has to have exactly the same line on everything the convention is doing. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But I think it's reasonable to say you'll be generally positive and here are some topics that we have some standard things that we say about them and we'd like you to say those standard things. Yeah, I think it can be standard things, but it can also be like in a fast moving situation where, you know, things could go in multiple directions. Like, for instance, a thing, you know, with the Hugo finalists, where things are obviously moving very fast and they could have resolved in multiple different ways. I don't think it would be helpful if you ended up with conflicting messages from different senior members of staff on that one, or even kind of senior members of staff just like disagreeing with each other. You're better off kind of, you know, deciding who is going to take the lead on communications for the convention for that and backing them up on it. Help reminding people that they don't necessarily need to weigh in all of the time on every argument on the internet that concerns the convention that they're working on. 
especially arguments that are about live issues that don't have resolution yet, is not a bad thing to do. Which is the, the thing that I joked last time about um, about Glasgow doing. Um, but, you know, it is sensible. I was going to ask, did, uh, did, has, at the time of recording, has Meg listened to episode 35 yet? That's the question. It doesn't seem very likely, does it? Because it's been like six hours. You should either be doing practical things that people need to know or things that support your overarching convention philosophy. So, so for example, for Follycon, producing work by our guests of honour was supporting the overall sense of what it was that we wanted to do with the convention. And and for a Worldcon, you might say, well, producing the art show is is producing the art showcases is expressing our philosophy about what the art show should be like at this convention. But but all too often you kind of get a thing where you go, well here we have a a, a chunky souvenir book. What does it have in it? Oh let's look at what last year's had in it. I I'm 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 much more going let's what what is the positive what are the positive things you're going to try and achieve with this. Yeah, so I think that's interesting because I've been wondering if whether there's also another sort of role now for social media in that um this was some some discussions I was having with friends about uh, non-convention things, but just about like how you try and grow your social media presence and how you try and attract more people to your social media, which is like an increasingly important tool for bringing people to your convention. Um, and sometimes it seems like the strategies for growing your social media presence are not always going to be completely aligned with keeping your communications just to kind of, you know, things that are practically important about the convention or sort of things that relate to the philosophy of the convention. So I think you do need to balance how you can have a sort of engaging social media presence that actually draws people in and also hopefully posts on a regular basis um, and is, is there to answer people's questions and tell them practical information, but also to try and do a bit sort of outreach just through social media. Um, and I know personally I'm not very good at doing social media for conventions because I'm not very good at getting that balance between you know, posting regularly and posting interesting stuff without kind of just posting things for the sake of it that are maybe not that related to your convention or or its philosophy. You're just sort of randomly posting things on the subject of science fiction fandom for the sake of like trying to pull in more science fiction fans. Um, and I think that's quite a tricky balance to make. And I wonder if there are, you know, I wonder if there are social media experts that we should be talking to more about how we run our social media effectively or trying to get on board on board with us just because I, I think some conventions are not very good at it and also like there are more and new forms of social media that we're not really using like I felt I don't think I've seen many conventions with good sort of Instagram or TikTok presences it's all kind of still Facebook and Twitter and I think I would just say I echo all of the things you've just said about what you find challenging with with kind of doing timely um, social media so I think that is a, a good point Glasgow does indeed it's disability pride month it posted two hours ago on instagram so glasgow very much has their social media strategy is we will be wherever we will have a social media presence wherever we think that the fans are that that would be would enjoy a convention so they for example have social media presence on ravelry which is the um knitting social network oh that's clever and and also in fanzines because that's where I think that is just me, so I'm not sure that really counts. Um, I hesitate to say, well, we should get people who are professional experts in this in because that's the sort of people who are professional experts in particular roles aren't always the very best people to run those things for a Worldcon. 
Yes, we need to be in more places, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Easter cons suddenly need to have a big TikTok presence. Yeah. I maybe don't mean TikTok, but I'll, it may also just be a sign that I am old now and don't know what the good social media platforms are. I thought your point on the, the, the giant logistics uh, document was interesting, though, because another aspect of convention publications is making sure that they do like move with the times. And I'm sure there's lots of stuff we used to put in convention publications, like exact details of how you get to the hotel that you don't need to anymore. Often still very useful. Yeah, some of them are still very useful. But in, in a way, it's like, are you putting in here stuff which is already out there do you maybe just need like one copy of this at the convention info desk rather than posting it to a thousand people or similar i mean not not directions to the hotel yes i guess that is useful because people need to get to the hotel um but i think restaurant guides have moved from being you know here are all the restaurants around to more of a sort of like here is how you can pick a restaurant that is going to suit you and your your party because of you know uh, different accessibility needs or different dietary requirements rather than you know because people can look in certain ways, just like look up more easily how to get to places. They need a slightly different set of information. And it's important to make your publications change with what people actually need. Yeah, you don't want to abandon everyone who doesn't have ready access to a smartphone, but you can consider that a lot of your convention now does. Well, and restaurant guides is a really interesting one because I think the merit in a restaurant guide now is much more tapping into local knowledge than it is giving a kind of dispassionate summary of what's about because you can get the dispassionate summary from TripAdvisor or Google Maps or wherever you prefer to get your information but if you've got someone who lives in the area who loves eating out they're going to have the information like don't go on a Tuesday it's the wrong chef you won't enjoy it or if you go on this day like the queues will be awful going this day it will be much better or what or that that kind of personal information is really useful and something that's really difficult to get by just searching but the opening hours you don't that that is not useful because it's it's trivially available yeah i i think i'm near nearer liz that in fact it's the things like accessibility and archery requirements which the formal restaurant guides on the internet are still very poor at often whereas fans definitely need that that's true a lot of convention social media presences are still quite bad it's this thing that liz mentioned about talking about stuff that's kind of random science fiction stuff without in any way relating it back to the site or the convention or the people who are likely to be there or or the memberships. I mean, I kind of, I guess, I think of conventions as being a little bit like a fanzine, that they're a community of people or a podcast. They're a community of people. And, and what you're actually trying to do is find stuff that's going to be of interest to that community and tell them about that and get and get some engagement going about that. Because otherwise, the only things on your social media sites will be everybody whining at you. But yeah, I think actually, the thing is that generating the content for social media is really hard work and i'm going to bring up glasgow again as an example of you know how for pride month glasgow had a whole series of posts ready and things to discuss and things that they could put on their social media feed so they weren't merely you know tweeting happy pride month here's some rainbows it was actual interesting content of interest to their members and glasgow specific but that takes an awful lot of of preparation and work and you know cohesive communications strategy and i i see too many things that kind of don't do that and just post happy may the fourth be with you day and this is actually a really good point because it kind of gets to something that alison was saying earlier where 
you know, there are two schools of thought with the publications you make. You either think, well, what did Worldcon do last year? Or you think about what it is you're trying to put out into the world and you reflect that. But the problem with social media is that if you take the kind of we'll just do enough that people know we're here, you end up with that kind of just tweeting every two weeks saying happy, happy Pride Month, happy Star Wars Day, whatever. And you're not. That would be better than the average um, convention social media strategy. But it, I, I will say that I think doing what Liz is describing and what Glasgow is doing, where you are having that kind of um, sustained program of interesting content, is is probably more work than the traditional, um, than, than than assembling the content used to be for the traditional suite of, of, of publications, because you've got vastly more content you need to put out now. And so it is, I think, a real it's a really difficult thing and glasgow are making it look very easy so well done to glasgow glasgow working very very hard esther said at conspire that the things that they were doing in terms of running panels at conventions and having a lot of blog posts on their social media site and in general being extremely engaged um in all the ways they can be for a bid are kind of what they're doing because they can't be in all your regional conventions running parties because those those conventions aren't happening. They are running virtual parties as well, but they're not, you know, they're not serving whiskey to the denizens of Chicago or whatever. And um and I feel like that's that's they've actually directed bid energy. They've actually thought quite seriously about well where can we direct our bid energy if it's not into running parties at regional conventions. It's going to be really interesting to assess how well that works because first I'm interested in, in how it works if you have a communication strategy that relies less on going out and, and meeting people and more on doing it or online. But also I think it's a really hard thing to assess because how well do you, how do you judge how well your social media is working? Do you judge it purely on the number of people who are joining your bid and, you know, giving you money? I mean, that's one way to do it. But also it's clearly like raising awareness and maybe getting you into, you know, corners of fandom that you wouldn't otherwise be in or, you know, getting people engaged from different groups. And I'd, I'd be really interested to know if any conventions have tried to kind of assess how their different outreach methods are working. You know, can you use like, you know, different different URLs in different places to see if you can work out where the referrals are coming from and that kind of thing? John, tell me about analytics. So um, and I think this is a really interesting point, which I think I think you can do that. It is not clear to me how much of that you can do for free. Yeah, you, you can do little bits of it for free. But the question about whether you really want to. um yeah. I'm not sure how many people, either Eastercons or Worldcons, are attracting, especially at the bid stage, who are not already known to the community through much more traditional outreach methods like we know those people. I just wanted to come back to something that Alison said earlier about how she was worried she might be repeating herself. The other key thing about convention communications is you need to repeat yourself because people especially on 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 social media where the things you see are not controlled by are you looking at the right time but are controlled by kind of what does the algorithm decide to show you it's vitally important that you tweet things multiple times in different formats if they're vital information because if you don't people might miss them uh, and so you can't assume that if you tweet something once everyone who you need to read it will read it and that's another really important thing 
this is why it's important that everything that people actually need to know is also on your website in a way that they can find. Um, yeah. Because e- literally every piece of information that people are likely to go looking for needs to be, you need to be have, either have it there or tell people how they can get it or when they're going to get it. And did we do any of these things for punctuation? Not really, but it was fun anyway. And we're going to do another. Oh, no, that's secret. No, we did. We did we did eventually make sure we'd put the program on the website. It did take us a while. One of the things I find very frustrating about conventions is when they put a piece of pro- a piece of information in one place rather than putting it in many places because that's the other key. And the thing and so there has been examples of conventions in the distant past and in the more recent past which which have kind of said, "Oh, well it's on our Facebook." And it's like that's not helpful because I mostly check your website your mailing list and discord so if you've just put it on your facebook i have missed it despite the fact i'm following in three different places and the thing we did do i think quite well for punctuation is that when we wanted to tell people something it was on our website it was in our emails and it was on our discord and it was on our social media now i don't think we did a great job of continually pushing those things and i think we probably could do that better next time but i will say i think punctuation two much better job than punctuation one where we were like everything's on the discord why is no one checking uh, and something that we did iterate quite quickly for punctuation to to make that better and so it is one of those things that if you don't think about it it's very easy to fall into that trap but um put everything you want people to know in as many places they will read it as possible we did forget to put the punctuation two program on the website for quite a long time though until i told people it was on the website and then I had to go john put the program on the website look right we're clever listeners so there's there's room for improvement <laughs> But also, if you think that we are holding Worldcons to a higher standard than Eastercons, which we're holding to a higher standard than the convention we run in six weeks flat for a bunch of our mates, then you are not wrong. <laughs> I think I gave John my Airtable for Follycon and suggested he might like it for 2024. And I feel like if you don't have a grid system for your communications as if you were like number 10 or something you do need one even if you're quite small certainly regionals need one you need you have to have a calendar and know when your big messages are coming and know when you've got fallow periods and you're going to have to have the summer of fun or something to 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 find things to tell people because there's nothing going on and and you need to have that stuff quite early and in quite a boring way and although john says make sure that everything is everywhere you need you often need to have the same message in multiple different formats and you need to you need to have art and and pictures that you could use to go with your messages and you need to know places that you could get them and all of this stuff is a lot of quite i mean it's not really like professional social media work i mean it is like professional social media work but it's like the most boring and basic type of it but you kind of need to do that stuff and if you are just still at the phase of oh this has happened we should tweet something you probably should take a step back from that and i think a lot of conventions are still doing social media in a very seat of the pants sort of way that's not necessarily helpful did i say last time that having a hugo division that both administered the hugos and ran the hugo like ceremony was probably a bad idea yeah oh well i won't do that again then although if you did i have a new thing which might be good which is that nicholas nicholas white wrote a thing about the hugos and what he's voting for in best related work 
And one of the things he sort of buried as a nugget in that bit was his emotional reaction to watching the Hugo ceremony at Conzeeland because he felt quite strongly that the Hugo ceremony at Conzeeland did not reflect what he was trying to achieve as the administrator of the Hugos. And I thought that was quite an interesting example of an area in which a failure to have a clear convention line on what something was had basically meant that that that, that the eventual public-facing hugos from conzeeland were something that the hugo administrator was sad about i think i think the things the set of things that went wrong with conzeeland's hugo ceremony um (laughs) it's quite big and a lot of it's related to failing to cope with the pandemic and therefore failing to keep George under control, which they might not have been able to do anyway, but certainly couldn't under the circumstances. And yeah. But I think I think that happens maybe to a lesser extent across the whole of the convention. Like, it's perfectly possible to put together a great programme and then find that the advertising of it by, you know, the promotions or communications division is kind of really disappointing and entirely not focusing on what you want them to or to put on a set of really great events and find that you know the publications division managed to not list them in the right way in the program like I think there's lots of ways divisions interact where basically you can cause disappointment to one division because of what the other one does but I don't think that's an argument for the kind of reforming them in different ways I think actually what you're arguing for is better communication between divisions rather than reforming them in a different way yeah I think so, I mean, essentially what you're saying is that you have to take this set of division heads who are, and possibly deputy division heads, who are very global, come come at the Worldcon from very different perspectives, often have very little in common and sometimes actively hate each other, and form them into a cohesive team, despite the fact that everyone's working on a voluntary basis, and it's all a big set of baronies. So, um, yeah, quite hard. I mean, it, it's it's not trivial but i mean it does get done better at some conventions than others no and i and i will just say i think i think you and liz are both right i think that is the answer but i just um i I thought it was worth bringing up just because i think it it kind of got a little bit of what i was trying to get at last week but i I do agree with both of you i I mean (laughs) there is something here too about the actual job of chairing a Worldcon, which is sufficiently in order to get it you have to kind of you have to be very single-minded about it in a way that is not necessarily doesn't necessarily require the same skill sets as the building a cohesive happy team skill set and at least in at least a couple of cases i've watched as conventions kind of jockeyed around who would end up with the chairmanship of the convention and have not ended up with the person that i would have thought would be the best at pulling the team together and and I think that's the sort of thing that does play out down the line. Yeah, I, I think that goes with the very, when we were talking about conventions, which have a very strong chair's voice versus those that don't. Sometimes having a very strong chair's voice kind of just sets the tone for the whole thing. And so when you are, if you have the kind of the chair in place when you're recruiting the division heads, then they kind of know what they're what they're getting into. You know, they sort of know what the tone of the convention is going to be. And I think you can also mitigate this because you know which divisions are going to have to work more closely with each other and which ones are going to be at kind of more arm's length. Um, And so you try and make sure that the division heads in divisions that are going to work really closely with each other are, you know, more on the scale of working well together rather than the hating each other side of things. 
you know, you know, like program and events are going to work very closely together. I think you know that sort of facilities and member services are going to work very closely together and that kind of thing. And by the same tone, it's clear that Worcester's division is often quite detached, partly because of the Hugo Far Wall, but in general is often quite detached from some of the other areas of the convention. And that is an issue for things like the Hugo ceremony, where obviously they should be working very closely in tandem with events. I mean, Worcester's basically kind of runs almost three separate things that don't actually go very closely together because it runs the Hugo's it runs site selection it runs the Whispers business meeting and those three things just kind of go together because they're the things you sort of have to run because Whispers exists but they don't actually sit together that neatly they sit together neatly in that they're the precise set of things that the Worldcon is required to do so um Ali Baker who is um someone who will be well known to eastcon fans uh she has run programs at eastcon and is running the program with virginia preston at the 2022 eastcon uh has started a new podcast it's called the fantasy book swap and the basic um concept for the podcast is that a guest picks a favorite fantasy book from their childhood uh ali picks a complimenting contemporary book and they talk about them the first episode is adela terrell and Ali talking about the magic faraway tree and the dragon in the library by Louis Stowell and they will be recording that um, in between now and when this episode comes out and there will be a link in the show notes I think this is a really cool idea and I'm pretty sure Alison is excited too yeah no so so I I the magic faraway tree was my favorite book in the whole world when John was minus 15 years old or something like that i don't know the magic faraway tree is the first book i remember reading i i have a lot of of fondness for that yeah i mean it's it's it was my first not necessarily my first chapter book and certainly not my first book because i i read a lot of very short books but but certainly the first book that i kind of had that reading experience fanish reading experience of reading the same thing over and over again and going this is this is amazing i should i I want to read this all of the time um i i grew out of that phase the last time i finished a book and went i must start this again from the beginning um it was wolf hall and its sequels by hillary mantel and i got over it pretty quickly because it's like 100 and 1800 pages long anyway um so i have read the dragon in the library and i really didn't like it very much at all and i haven't reread um the magic faraway tree but i suspect i wouldn't like that very much at all either and i think this is because i'm not eight <laughs> what i think both of these books are really aimed at people who are quite a bit younger than me now. But I do have lots of interesting thoughts about The Dragon of the Library, so I'm going to pre-lock Ali's podcast. And I think if you also have a lot of interesting thoughts about these books, you should pre-lock it as well so she can start the podcast with a load of, a load of letters that say this is, an, this is more an opinion than a question. And I think you are right. I don't know. Um, I have not read uh, The Dragon in the Library and and I, I'm probably not going to because I'm still chewing my way through the Hugo Voter Packet. Um, thank you very much, Alison. I am also chewing my way through the Hugo Voter Packet. Um, I think I've read about 8% of Sean and Maguire's series. Uh, so, you know, there's work to be done. 
I am super excited to listen to the podcast. I think it's a really good idea for a podcast. It plays to Ali's strengths, both in genre and in her academic expertise really well. And I think it's really cool that we're getting more podcasts coming out of the British um, science fiction fandom. Uh, And I think that is just, that can only be a good thing. So um, well done, Ali. And I look forward to hearing episode one. And I really love the way that it's speaking directly to this way that people have fond memories of the books that they read in childhood and so believe that they are much better than they were in fact and are in fact. And and hopefully that's something that will come out. I, I have suggested a book that I still think is quite good that is one of my favourite books for childhood. So hopefully I'll be a future guest on this show. And I did not suggest, but somebody else might like to, I did not suggest... Journey to Jupiter by Hugh Walters, but I did think about it quite hard, which would have been, which is possibly a book that was even more influential on me than than um, the book I have picked. Oh, is this a, this a spoiler that you're going to be on a future episode? I'm happy to be on a future episode. Yeah, I, I mean, I I, 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 I nabbed the book, so so she has somebody else talking about that book. I'm going to be very sulky. What book did you pick, Alison? I'm not going to say because. You know, I want it to be a surprise when the podcast comes out. But I mean, anyone who knows me and knows the books that I cite as influence that are children's books would probably have a good guess. Um, Somebody else in that thread grabbed Cart and Quidder, which is another book that I might well have chosen. But I didn't read it when I was a child, so I don't think it would count this as one I did read as a child because it was a television series when I was a child. I think I have not I have not asked Ali whether I could be on it or not. Uh, And I don't know if I will. But if I did ask, or if she invited me, the book I would pick would be Rebecca's World by Terry Nation, which is a phenomenal children's book. Uh, It's the only children's book Terry Nation wrote, and it is the same Terry Nation from the Daleks. And it is about a world in which ghosts are repelled by wood, and that's why there are no ghosts, and we don't realise that until we've chopped all the forests down and replaced them with gleaming skyscrapers and modernity. And it is... I I just loved it when I was a kid. Um, I thought it was brilliant. I have no idea how it holds up. I have no idea what Ali would say about it. Um, but but yeah, it's my kind of... I, I've always loved that book. It's a great choice. Liz, what would you pick if you went on the podcast? I don't know. I'm thinking about this now. I think the problem is that I was probably reading books that were age group inappropriate when I was a, uh, you know too young for them. And so I'm now trying to think of what fantasy books I read that might have been like actually age appropriate rather than Anne McCaffrey, which was not. Uh, and, and very much not. I mean, maybe I will... Um, who, I think it was uh, Falls Meadows who read a bunch of early Anne McCaffrey and just highlighted all the immensely terrible stuff in them. <gasps> Some of which I picked up on even even at the time. So you can tell how kind of egregious it must have been. Um, that's maybe, it's maybe a digression, but I'm trying, to think, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of what I would have read. I must have read stuff. I mean, I read, I read like every book in the library. So this is probably the problem is that I read so many books as a child. It was basically whatever was in the library and nothing has stood out as I read it 27 times apart from I read a lot of books about girls going to ballet school or going to boarding school or boarding ballet school or that kind of thing. Did you read any about girls going to magical boarding ballet schools? No, I don't think I did. That's the thing. They're all going to sensible boarding schools and except for one who gets like consumption and then has to go to a special boarding school. I feel like this is not this was not John's reading experience. <laughs> if nothing else, we're learning we're learning a lot about formative Liz, which I am thoroughly enjoying. There's a there's a there's a group on Facebook called Finishing School, which is a 
a group of people who chat about um, old-fashioned, old-fashioned children's books. So, so things like Angela gets it off, and you know, <laughs> Jill enjoys her ponies. <laughs> oh, I will. No, I, I actually know. I know what it would be now. I think what it would be is actually I started reading all these point horror and point fantasy books that are, you know, probably when I was at primary school. So actually, yes, they'd be a great choice. It's a lot of terrible books about like American high school kids getting murdered on on demonic roller coasters and things. Excellent. Well, those are children's books, so I think that's a good. I think that would be a great choice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, Jesus. So, John, do you want to know how much the audiobook of Rebecca's World by Terry Nation, narrated by Paul Darrow, will set you back on Amazon? I don't know, but you should do it. How much is it? £894. Jesus. I mean, not... These are... What we're saying here is that Rebecca's World is a rare book at this point. That was the Octothought podcast, and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Where are you at the moment, Liz? I am in the UK. In captivity. Next to the nicest garden in the world. It is a very nice garden. I don't think it's the nicest garden in the world but it is lovely it's a very nice garden she was like i'm in captivity and she showed us this photograph of a beautiful garden to be fair john said i was in captivity and i felt i said you were in captivity oh no alison said i was in captivity and i felt i should point out that actually i have an entire house with a nice garden to myself so it's, it's really not that bad the theme music for this episode was surf shimmy by kevin mcleod and combatech.com used under a creative commons attribution 4.0 license This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.